0: Hello and welcome to this, the 46th episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus O'G McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, which is always most important, I'm always available for work. More recently, a director and a producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute, in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar and as ever we are bringing you this podcast absolutely free of charge because we are morons when it comes to business we've promised that we won't ever charge you for these but we are looking for you to put your money back into Irish theatre whole ethos behind this podcast is to support promote and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre what is the simplest way to support yeah you know it go and buy yourself some tickets it's easy it's straightforward it keeps this whole machine ticking over if tickets are outside your reach this week or this month go on over to one of the crowdsourcing websites like fundit.ie donations there start as low as a fiver. Always great rewards in return for those donations and you get a warm fuzzy feeling inside. Of course there are many ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person over a cup of coffee or a pint uh, by sharing the link as a Facebook post or maybe retweeting the link on Twitter. Maybe do that this week. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Yeah, we'd appreciate it. Go for it. Um, Do please subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. It'll magic its way into your account every Thursday. Uh, Go back and listen to all our other episodes. Get Peter Daly right the way up there in the charts make him feel like he's making a contribution leave us a review over on iTunes is a huge help uh, or you can simply click to rate us on their 5 star rating system we have some lovely reviews over there I have to say and lovely reviews from all over the world um, that's another big one we'd really love you to do this week go on over there leave us a little review come on we've been doing this for whatever 11 months at this stage something like that something crazy um, give us a little bit of support it would be lovely you can of course as ever follow us on Facebook we are facebook.com forward slash rise productions Ireland or you can follow us on Twitter we are at Rise Ireland. So it has been a hectic week this week. I've been doing kind of bits and pieces in my life as freelance actor uh, behind the scenes but also the training for Fight Night uh, and the tour over to Finland and even more importantly the Dublin run that's coming up um, has just been absolutely brutal. It's been really punishing um, but we're getting amazing results from it. I've... uh, I kind of jumped on the scales the other day, and in the first three weeks of this training camp, I had cut as much weight as I did in the initial three-month training camp for the original run of Fight Night. Now, obviously, for very sound reasons, I mean, the original run, the original training camp was all about me learning to box, learning how to move, learning the footwork, learning hand speed, all that kind of stuff and technique um, while bumping up the cardio. Because I just, I would never boxed before, I needed to get all that up to scratch. Uh, whereas this time around, we know that those kind of boxing skills are there. We know that the cardio is up because we've been touring it around with the electric picnic gigs and the other festivals. So we knew that was all there. And now it's just a question of trying to, oh man, I was going to say sculpt the body, but that sounds like I'm a big bodybuilder and that's absolutely not the case. But, you know, trying to change the shape of the body into um, into making them look like a middleweight. So it means just stripping away as much body fat as possible and trying to pile on as much lean muscle as possible, which is horrendous, i got to tell you. Essentially, at the moment, I'm training every 12 hours. Uh, which is pretty exhausting when you're trying to fight fit that in around, you know, a life and a career and a family and everything else around it. But we do it because we love you, we do it because we love Fight Night, and we want you guys to get the best experience possible when you come and see us. Whether you fly over to Finland to see us, or whether you come and see us in the Viking Theatre in Klontarf, or uh, or indeed a theatre upstairs at Lanigans when we're there in October, which we would love to see you come and see us. But uh, yeah, this training may very well kill me. Of course, I could just maybe not let myself go so much in between runs of Fight Night. That might help, but you know what? I like red wine, I like crisps nah, these things aren't ever going to change so look that brings us to our phenomenal guest this week and uh, it's a special one gang last week we brought you Russia Goan, you know the current head of the Fringe Festival at the moment because it's fringe time of year and in keeping with that trend we've decided to go back to the very beginning the man who created Dublin Fringe The brilliant Jimmy Faye uh, You know A wonderful director In his own right And such a kind of Storied history um, And this guy's A phenomenal storyteller This is uh, maybe one of my All time favourite Podcast interviews I have to say I had such a ball Hanging out with Jimmy um, He's a guy I really like And respect uh, Let's get straight into it Here he is The phenomenal Jimmy Faye The wonderful Jimmy Fay. Thank you so much For coming on the podcast I am delighted to have you It's a great honour Thank <laughs> you very much For asking Let us As we do every week go back to the very beginning uh, How, when and why a career in theatre for you. When did that spark go off you?
1: Yeah. I <laughs> who knows. Um I was an altar boy and I liked the service <laughs> and I was really into it and I kinda thought, uh, I like being on stage and I like the whole setup and it was in Tala, which at that stage was a kind of pioneer town. It was like right it still is, but it was right on the edge of the country. Yeah. So you had a combination of country and wilderness and it felt like I remember we'd I was born in Canada and my parents were came over from there and it felt we went to another frontier like I was four when I came over wow at that kind of age and literally the church was in a school and it was in everything was kind of in prefabs and stuff like that so we felt very much on the edge and then years later I remember seeing the film The Searchers and I thought yeah that's what we were like (laughs) we were like (laughs) pioneers living in Tala because Tala was the wild west and it was it was kind of a crazy place and I mean, it's this huge urban sprawl now, but then I remember like there was fields and horses and everything just right outside our garden, you know, wow. before they built the next estate and stuff, you know, and, you know there was travelers' horses and they lived like caravans just around the corner. So there was this kind of home mentality, settlers and Indians, and it was, and we played in like um, fields and stuff. So, and rivers and climb trees, and it was a really active place for imagination. But I remember, it, um, for some reason, I became an altar boy and i was an older boy for years i was an older boy for six years and i really really liked it you know until i was too old to be an altar boy anymore <laughs> so um i liked the whole ceremony and i liked the the dress and i liked the, the you know easter and i liked all these kind of things it was kind of mad but when i went to school it went to secondary school i had a really good primary school but when i went to secondary school it was School of Hard Knocks, you know? Right, okay. We stayed in um, Tala and it was like, it was a really tough place. And because my name was Faye, I got the gay Faye. (laughs) And I was gay Faye for, oh man, you had uh, like for a year, for my entire 13th year, I was gay Faye. And at the end of that, there was an Irish course or something. And like, I was bullied like to hell for being gay, even though I wasn't gay. (laughs) Okay? It was nuts. It was nuts. And at the end of that, I thought, okay, I have to. I have to do something here because I was just miserable. And somebody was doing the show and it was in Irish um, and it was Snow White in Irish up in a bomb, and um, a wore dress became Snow White in Irish. And it kind of was amazing. It was a very liberating moment. It was this, you know, it's the only time I've ever worn a dress. But it was, I just remember being very liberated by the act. And I remember people really enjoying the show because we put the show together. It was kind of like with an Irish teacher and we did this thing for the whole school. And... It was just an amazing, liberating moment. I sort of thought, oh, I've plugged into this. It's great. So I know that sounds really odd. <laughs> okay, well, alter boy. I, I would have
0: thought that you know, getting away from gay bullying, would be the best way to embrace that would be to put on a dress. But clearly, if it works. Well, the other thing
1: is, I was also like... You see, the two favourite sports I had in school was swimming and running. Now, obviously, it wasn't a swimming pool anywhere where, where we were. Right. But it was a swimming pool like a couple of miles away and you would have to jog to get to Smenthal. So, <laughs> so I became kind of stronger <laughs> <laughs> just by doing that, you know. And um, yeah, it all stopped then. It all suddenly stopped uh, and uh, I, there was, the school had some very good teachers, of Sweeney and a few others who would create shows and we would, you know, be in them and uh, I did two or three. I mean, the first one we kind of created called Manhattan Sour, which is lost to history, but it was great. It was kind of gangster. Um, Chicago thing, and the second one was Philadelphia Here I Come, where I played S.B. O'Donnell, and obviously, I mean, look, everybody loves that play, I mean, it's an amazing play, you know, but it was kind of, um, it was an extraordinary kind of, um, I just remember kind of being in that play again in school, and uh, something moved, you know, you just, not the two guys playing Garn, public and private, were fantastic. I don't think they went on to be actors at all. I don't know who they are anymore. But I just remember watching them night after night and just thinking they were extraordinary and the language was extraordinary. And there was a way that it it felt like, I mean, I remember, you know, like I mean, when the show went on, I mean, people loved it, you know? In this, in where we were, which was, you know, Old Bond had a reputation in Tala as being a kind of progressive school, but it was tough enough, you know? There was a huge number of people in classes and... It, you know, like it, it, it was a kind of tricky enough place to negotiate to to, to to trying to survive, but I mean, they for some reason embraced the arts and they quite liked the theatre, so I did that for a couple of years and um, then didn't do it for the last couple of years um, for whatever reason. But I kind of had a bug, and then I went off to VC in Chicor and kind of didn't know what I was doing like when I left school I really didn't know what I was doing I, I was working in the cinema down in the classic cinema right. as an usher and I was paying the bills and I was kind of doing this acting course with some good teachers and there I met a guy called Neville Carlyle Style who subsequently the following year set up Bull Alley right. and he asked me to come along and that kind of changed my life that was kind of that gave me focus because Neville I wasn't looking for a guru, but he nice. kind of was. Um, I really liked that Van Morrison song, what was it, In the Garden, but like, what's the name of the album, uh, No Guru, No Method, No Teacher. Um, but Neville was somebody to kind of, Why well, you get a guru or you get a, a mentor, it's probably a better expression, is that you can rebel against them, okay? Right. You know, they s- establish an order that you can see, and then you can see if you want to kind of be part of that order, or you want to embrace it, or you want to kind of rebel against it, and Neville it was an extraordinary man, he, uh, he still is, I mean I think he, I, I don't see him at all anymore because with all gurus you fall out with them, <laughs> but um, he, um, he was a brilliant director and he kind of saw that I had no real talent as an actor at all, <laughs> even though I kind of fooled myself I had for a bit, um, but that I could stage stuff or that I was, I, I was good at kind of communicating kind of ideas with other actors, and he and kind of embraced your head, me. In head,
0: at that stage, the plan was to be an actor?
1: No, not, no, I mean, I wanted to be everything, right. you know? Okay. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I kind of had some idea about directing, because the other thing that I really loved growing up as well was films, all yeah. black and white films. And quite quickly, you come along, Hitchcock, and Hitchcock had died whenever, in 1980, but I was about 10, but like, I mean, after that, they probably showed seasons as films, and he was dead. So you knew something about what a director was or was that personality or something I mean I, I gathered that quite quickly that a director was in control I know the people are going to say oh I know no idea what a director was but I kind of knew the director in terms of the film yeah. was very much um, you know like I'm in mean, the centre of it mm. you know and I figured you know even doing the plays in school and then subsequently doing the plays with Neville and stuff like the director was in a sense the centre or made things happen not necessarily always the artist of the piece but definitely somebody who progressed it if yeah. they were good you know and um, so yeah I did want to be a director even when I left school like I mean I also want to act you know because um uh, you know that's what you see and like yeah. you fall in love with actors you know like again in film and stuff you know like I saw very little theater like I don't think I saw I don't know what the first play I saw was like actually saw yeah. um uh, proper play I think I think, it, I think it was actually Uncle Vanier in the gate, somebody gave me a, we got, we went there and it was quite a, I remember thinking that was amazing, you know, yeah. but um, Alwyn Fury was in it, that's what I remember, right. and Stanford, Alan Stanford, um, and I had no idea why I was there, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I got into theatre after that and I remember buying a ticket for Stephen Berkhoff's, um, Salome yeah. on the last preview. And by complete chance I'd been with a friend that day and for some reason we were walking on the Liffey you know, down by Houston Station there and for some reason we were looking I don't know for shells. I, there was this mad guy I knew who was crazy about Joyce and then wanted to find some sort of he wanted to find something like I, I don't know snails and their shells yeah. at the base of the Liffey and I went walking him along the Liffey you know, right in the um, uh, on the mud and then leaving him and going straight up to the gate covered in this kind of slime and liffy slime and sitting down and thinking oh my god this is kind of amazing everybody's dressed up and i smelt i really did and Stephen Burkoff sat beside me because he was still giving notes and he was watching the show and stuff like that and i just remember him sniffing all the way through the whole thing but i do remember thinking that show was extraordinary and i think i wanted to be like him i kind of thought if i could act and direct the way he did it, that would be amazing, and I love that physical thing, you know, even though I I had no idea that was a a different thing to do, I just really liked it, you know, so all these kind of weird sort of things happened, Um, you know, like um, Neville, the other thing about Neville, is he was South African, and he was kind of running away from apartheid, and there was all this kind of stuff, and he was quite political in the shows that he chose to do, and Bilali and stuff, and he was also very musical and very kind of... um, I don't want to say the word camp, but he had a very kind of, like, um, um, highly theatrical imagination, you know? Almost, I'd say now, kind of German expressionist. Right. You know, he had a certain way of lighting the shows that he did and stuff. I mean, he was brilliant to study, really, really good, you know? So, I mean, I definitely kind of was under his wing for a few years, and he taught me kind of things.
0: So, what was was the evolution from that, then? What's... What's the next step from there? How, how do you? Well, then, I mean, mean, th- mean, well,
1: no, because then what happens is you think you're going to do this for the rest of your life. You've set the other thing I want to mention, I'm yes. sorry that I forgot, which has a bearing on it, is that um, there was a summer that our chaos, the metal clown, the, the circus came to town, right. to Tala, to the thing, and um, it was around about the time of Jumbo Lally. But um, they were looking for recruits and um, 10 people from the local community. So I went along. There was hundreds. But I went along and uh, became one of the metal clans. With a view it to running away with the circus? Absolutely. does. Wow. like, yeah, yeah. I wanted to be, um, it was like a Ray Bradbury story. I wanted to run away with the circus. And Archaeus were the craziest circus. There was yeah. no animals. There was just this very punk. And it was total punk. It was French punk. It was yeah. like quite an extreme form. Like, they would juggle um, chainsaws. They would um, make you run down the track and then send a 90-mile-an-hour car after you. It was insane. I don't, don't know why <laughs> we got involved. Now, we did it for 10 days, two weeks, and at the beginning of that, the tent blew down, right?
0: Okay.
1: It got torn to shreds. It was a big, big thing with the theatre festival. It got, we were making our costumes shields and helmets and <laughs> painting them and stuff like that. And I met Ronald Lee and Robert Price... Two people I subsequently became very close to and worked very well with. And um, there was a few others on it as well. And we were there when the tent blew down. We were trying to hold the tent down. And it was crazy. It was being part of the circus, holding onto cables as you're being blown into the air and stuff. Wow. So they had to get another tent from France. And then somebody got murdered. There was this little woman who um, was found in a cubicle and had been murdered. You know, And she was very much part of the show. And the whole atmosphere was very, very... Insane, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was an insane kind of couple of weeks to be involved in that and very influential because they kept doing the show, you know. Whatever happened, they put the show on, they never stopped.
0: Don't let a murder get in the way of yeah, throwing yeah. cars 90 miles an hour. Down yeah, and it was a
1: kind of crazy. It was like, I don't know if I'd actually like to watch that show, but um, now, but um, at the time, I remember thinking it was very exciting, you know, and it was being lit, it was a little bit lit, like, um. Joining the Hells Angels at that bit. Anyway, like what happened with like obviously I couldn't be kind of under Neville's shadow forever, and I mean he uh, he um, we I mean we had a falling out, and I can't remember what it was about. But I began to direct. Um, I wanted to do, direct my own stuff, and I found out that the, the international bar um, for a week only charged fifteen pounds. Okay. So I figured if you charged four pounds, if you got four people to go. You're already oh, in profit, we, yeah. okay? <laughs> no, you know, like, I mean, you all, you've already made your rent, you know? And, you know, actors, you know, especially when you're 19 and 20 and stuff, will work for nothing, you know? So I did a bunch of actors. Like Mark Hardy was one of them as well, and Alex Johnson.
0: Wow, well, okay.
1: And Alex played... We did Accidental Death of an Anarchist by Dario Fo. Yes. And um, Alex and I culled the script together and wrote bits, and we called the script from different versions. Like, there's, there's lots of different versions, sure. you know? Um, English translations and stuff some about the others and we did and it was a huge hit like we were I I never made so much money in my life I know that's a really bad thing to say but like I mean suddenly the International Bar became this like you know god you can put a show on there and you can actually get a little bit of cash you know Um, and the show you know, like, you know, it taught me everything. I mean, we made our own posters, put our posters up, you know, and we rehearsed in a basement. I had this flat in Harrington Street that I shared with Ronald Leahy. <laughs> we rehearsed there, this screaming nut show, like, in a tiny, tiny room, like about a quarter the size of this room, okay, right. with six performers, okay? <laughs> and nobody complained. I mean, it sounded like we were murdering people down in the basement, and nobody ever, like, it was one of these terrible, terrible flats that you get, like, just off, South Circle Road there. Um, and we put on The intellectual Bar, and that was a big success. But from that, I, Alex and I kind of uh, did another show, Descriptions of Struggle, and then we had A Falling out. <laughs> and then Debbie Leading came into my life. And Debbie Leading was this English um, brilliant actress who was living in Dublin and obviously couldn't get a gig, yes. and had an idea about doing a Stephen Burkov play, which was East. And she saw Descriptions of Struggle, and she had heard of me... Um, because I'd done Anarchist and then like, nobody else had heard of me, you That's know. Okay. She just heard about me in the kind of grapevine. I mean, yeah. you're not, you know, you think you're making waves, but you're making tiny, tiny, tiny little waves. And uh, she said, would I direct her and her company in this thing called, uh, in the East by Steven Burkhoff. And I thought, uh, I'd love to do that. And uh, I can't wait to meet your company and stuff. But it's a bit like the stone and the soup. Yes. She didn't really have a company. She had herself, all right okay. But she was enough, you know. Yeah. Like I mean, I absolutely adored her, and she was um, very energetic. She was a brilliant producer, and she was Bedrock's first producer. Like we had a series of producers over the years, but I mean, she was a really dynamic actor struck producer, mm. and. We found, we wanted to do this in almost a site-specific way, right? We thought we'd do it... So we found a bar called the Theatre Bar, the da- Dark Horse, which is up. It doesn't exist anymore. It's, it was under the Cable Street. No, sorry. Um, what's the name? Talbot Street. Um, it was under a bridge. Right, and there was okay. this dank room, which was also, on Tuesdays, used for men to sell their fish,
0: right? an obvious move. Yeah,
1: yeah. And it was this pub, right? And then at the back of it, they sold fish. So this, the thing smelled of fish. But we would do our show myself. What is the
0: connection with you, Burkhoff and smells? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I want to do smell television, or theatre. That's what I want to do. But um, anyway, so she, um, so we found this place, we did it, and we we put a company together. Patrick Leach, um, Alex wasn't in that. Debbie and uh, Rob Webster and, and um, Declan Byrne and we and, and this was my last acting role. Right. <laughs> this is what I was going to do. I was going to go out on a Burkhoff thing because I knew acting wasn't for me, but I wanted to act a role. And um, we did it in the theatre bar and lots, again, you know, I've ne- I never for 10 years ever worried about where the audience would come from. They just came, you know, they were, really? yeah, we would pack out this di- divey little bar at the top of um, Thomas Street. It was amazing. It was and amazing.
0: any idea, why? Was there just a hunger for, not, I don't want to say alternative theatre, but in inverted commas, alternative to, you know, The Abbey or The Gate or whatever else, was there just a, a thirst there for that or did you just have a, a, a large and influential circle of friends or anything you could put it
1: down to? I, it could have been that. There could have been a kind of... There was possibly less definition of what the independence was because the independence... Like, I hadn't, you know, let alone... I hadn't gone, apart from that one time to the gate, I'd never been to the Abbey. Or, right. or had I? I? Possibly I had been, but not in any regular sense. And I'd never been to the project, you know? The project really? wasn't on my radar, yeah? And what was being set up at that time was the City Arts Centre, which was owned by Declan Gorman. So there was an element of independence about that, because what we did is, like, we went, you know, we did, you know, the Theatre Bar and the International Bar and the Dark Horse Bar and all these little... dives. Well, the International Bar is a great place. And then we went to Declan to persuade us to do a show, and we did a show in the City Arts Centre, which was the beginning to begin to be professional. And... And you know, we start growing like that. I don't know. Like, I mean, Actually, David Mamet talks about like when there's energy around something, people swirl around it. And we were definitely energetic and we were yeah. kind of making things happen at that time, about 93, 94, 95. And he, the, the, the independence... It, like, I remember going to the Arts Centre and we did a show that I wasn't particularly proud of, which was Dr. Faustus. We didn't quite do it. We just, it was kind of a mess. Yeah. Um, but then we did Saved by Edward Bond because I thought it would be good to do something a little bit more serious yeah. a little bit more dangerous and I'd read it and kind of thought well how do you stage something like that yeah. you know the stoning you know, of the baby and it wasn't even that it was kind of like the whole play itself had a kind of ugliness about it that I appreciated that I kind of thought was quite stark and that was very really kind of um, pertinent or something you know to where we were at because at that time there was a recession nobody had any money this is you know things go in cycles unfortunately but they do um and oh and how we became a company was because of that, because at that time there was something like the New Deal, like where FOSS yeah. actually came into play, where basically you could go to Foss and say, We're theater company and we'd like to pay ourselves rather than running off to her, yeah. you know Wednesdays to sign on along things, and they said yes. So we set ourselves up as a FOSS course, you know, where you needed twelve people and, and supervisor who yeah. was somebody we employ for publicity, okay? Yes. Literally. And we got the Ormond Multimedia Centre, which was where the Morrison is now, which was this old um, print works, yeah. right in the keys there. And we got an office there, you know, basically had a telephone and a room, and we had free rehearsal space, because there was all these rooms there that were used by bands at night yeah. that were just totally free for us to work during the day. And in
0: terms of that kind of a false key, is this, uh, this may sound indelicate, but is it the equivalent of, if a group of people are going to be on the dough anyway, why not formalise that and give them the dough plus whatever or less whatever to be part of this kind of false scheme, stroke theatre company? That was
1: exactly that. the reasoning behind it. You know, that was exactly it. Seems it. To we make thought, a
0: lot of sense. yeah, we're, yeah, we'd be starting a campaign to bust a lot now.
1: Well, I don't see what it can because actually, what it generated was also employment for the actors. Yeah. You know, because people will come and see some of these brilliant actors that were working with us and then employed them in bigger shows yeah. that were paid. And also it gave us a sense of pride because suddenly everybody was getting paid, more or less. Yeah. You know, I mean, they were getting paid a doll plus some. Yeah. But also there was another thing as well is you could get a certain allowance for you know stuff, which we all put into props and sets yeah. and you know making it that way. So suddenly we were kind of on... For a few years, we were able to generate cash that way.
0: And at this stage, were you Bedrock?
1: yeah we were Bedrock we, yeah. but Debbie and I had sat down and we said where are we go call the company because she had a terrible name which I'm not even going to go into what it <laughs> was right and she in fairness came up with it because a club that she knew in London our friend of hers ran a club called Bedrock and said it had been lucky for him and I liked the word Bedrock because it was kind of poppy
0: yeah
1: Flintstones yeah and it was kind of serious you know and um, it was kind of you know at the core of everything is a Bedrock a you know the there, there is something there you know, know? I mean, but, I, I mean, I wasn't crazy about it, you know. Obviously, you want to call something else, but eventually you have to call yourself something. You have to put something on the poster to identify yourself. So we became Bedrock. And I kind of, I still kind of like it, you know. I'm still kind of ambiguous about it, you know, right, This is the way, but right. years later, I feel like we've kind of, like, invested in it a bit. But, um, uh, yeah, so, like, um, we, um, so, yeah, I mean, we were, we were able to be very, very prolific. And we were doing these shows, and Sade was definitely a direction I wanted to go, Other people prefer the Faustus direction, which was a bit more camp or a bit more out there, you know. Um, And then I went to Canada, as I do sporadically, to kind of seek inspiration, because I worked in Canada for a while as a (laughs) pumping gas on a prairie. (laughs) But it was great, I had a graveyard shift, so I worked like 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., but from 12 midnight to 6 a.m., you're by yourself, and you meet all these characters going down the highway. Anyway, um, I was in a huge car accident, like a smash up, and really? yeah, and this was back in Ireland, and it was um, it, it was like I wasn't driving, but I was passenger, and um, it was awful because the girl who was driving broke every bone on her face, like, and they found like the left hand side of her mouth and the right hand side of her face a week later. The wow. swelling was that bad, and I just got the full impact packed of um, like there was no airbags or anything then, but I mean. I couldn't feel my legs and I was in the hospital for a week and it was, it was grim but while I was in Canada i picked up a play um, I'd seen a play by One Yellow Rally which were a really funky company that were in Calgary or Edmonton I can't remember where I saw them doing a Brad Fraser play
0: I can't let you mention Calgary without getting a pro wrestling reference in Calgary the home of all the greatest wrestlers in Canada that's alright the Hart family please continue it's also a rodeo town as well it's <laughs> yeah, a great great town but yeah yeah, in many ways um, <laughs> But anyway,
1: so um, I brought this playback called Unidentified Human Remains and the True Nature of Love by Brad Fraser, which I thought would be a really good one to do from what was basically my wheelchair or whatever, you know, like to start directing it that way. And um, I wasn't in a wheelchair, but I could, I, I had, Debbie, admittedly, would come to the uh, hospital and kind of help me walk around and stuff. And so were my folks and lots of people. But basically, it, it was a yeah. It, it was kind of like yeah. That, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate it too much because it was a pretty bad accident. But also, it was kind of okay. That's happened. That could have been the end of it. Yeah. And what have you done? All right. So I kind of want to keep doing what I was doing, right? Which was directing, theatre plays. I mean, I love to direct films, but that's a completely different thing. Um, and work with this company of actors that I was working with, and I really loved them. I kind of realized lying in James's hospital, kind of thinking, yeah, this is what I want to do. So, as soon as I got out of hospital, I got out at the end of July, we went into rehearsal in August, went to the Ormond Multimedia Centre, and we had a rehearsal room, we read a play, and this is where I think the company really gelled, actually, you know, because we had some, the actors who were not necessarily actors now, but that that group of actors um, were very concentrated, very focused, and everybody, we went for it, you know, in a a major way, and we did a really good show in Anders Landet. And I mean, that packed out and that got Fiac's interest. That's right.
0: I Who, think that that's what would have been a project, all right? Fiac
1: was at the project, you know, and by now I'd seen very little at the project. we have seen okay. a couple of Rough Magic shows or whatever, but I hadn't, uh, you know, it still hadn't quite engaged what that ethos was there. And Fiac and Madeline came to see Unidentified for Human Remains and they said, Are you interested in doing a show at the project? And we obviously said yes, because we could see this is the stepping ladder, you sure. know. You're starting a little. Back room of a bar, you go to the City Art Centre, then you go to the project, yeah. right? Next stop, Hollywood. <laughs> I don't know, you know, like <laughs> well, wherever.
0: But kind of nothing's changed as well. That's still kind of the, you know, the options that you go through. At
1: the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, and fair enough, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, you have to, you know, do it somehow. The point is when you're, you kind of play Snakes and Ladders, sometimes you go back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean?
1: So you got to be careful where a snake's head is. Yeah, um, anyway, um, so, yeah, so... Um, I did Artur Ui then with Alex doing an amazing performance in the City Arts Center. And again, Pat, just people, you know, it was great, you know? And then um we went to the project. And that was growing up, right? Yeah. Um because just before we did that, the fringe came along.
0: <laughs> well yeah, now let's let's discuss this because this is massively intriguing to me. What the hell happened?
1: Okay. <clears throat> it's funny, um, because it is, I mean, I talk about being a Taliban pioneer. I feel like the Daniel Boone <laughs> of the Fringe. Like, it's weird. I um, Lachlan Deegan, who's terrific, I mean, he sent to me last week, oh, I saw your interview with Sarah Keating that you started the Fringe. But I thought Fergus Linney had given you 10 grand to go and start it. Now, that's not true, okay? So let's start here. We were a really hot company, as yes. young companies tend to be. You, you become really hot and you become really insular and you become the best thing, you know, like you are it, you know, like the world only exists, you know, from your viewpoint. Okay. okay. So we figured like, I mean, we were really storming up the Dublin theatre scene, which we probably weren't, you know, but in our heads we were and we're definitely generating an audience. I mean I believe like if people are coming to see a show, something is happening. Yeah. You know? So we then applied to the Dublin Theatre Festival. Because obviously there was no such thing as a fringe. There had been some sort of Furstenberg fringe the year before or something like that, but that was very much kind of a one-off event and it hadn't really, I mean...
0: Hadn't captured the imagination. Yeah, yeah,
1: it, you know, it, it wasn't on... You know, we weren't part of it, so it. <laughs> So we applied to the Dublin Theatre Festival and said, you know, look, we have this play, The Stryker by Carol Churchill, yes. and we would like to do it in your festival, or in the Dublin Theatre Festival, or, you know, all our festivals. And they wrote back and said, no... And we said, okay, well, feck it, we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> okay, right, at that time. And because there was one thing, we were kind of clever enough to know that people would come over to see shows during the theatre festival. And at the end of the day, we wanted to kind of tour. Now, we weren't necessarily going to tour to Stryker, but we wanted to kind of show. This is th- who we are. all in current territory. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so then Fergus did write and say, look, why don't you come in and let's have a chat, you know. So I went in to meet him in the offices they had in Nassau Street at the time. And he said, look, yeah, we're thinking maybe we might have a little event where there'll be two or three companies. And, um, you know, maybe you want to be part of that. And I was thinking, yeah, okay. And they said, well, maybe, you know, like, um, do you know any other companies? And I really, there was a few, like there was blue raincoats and stuff. And I said, well, I'll, I'll ask them and see if they're interested. They weren't interested. Like, Corn Exchange didn't exist then. They did loose cannon. Okay. There, there was none of those people around. But I still thought, look, it might be interesting to do something like this, right? Um, to do a kind of... Like, nobody was using the word fringe, okay? okay. And Fergus wasn't keen about having another festival, right? He really wasn't, yes. okay? I mean, his idea was not, um, you know, to set up a fringe, right? His idea was kind of... He knew that there was young companies out there that may... In fact, what Lachlan Deegan did then, you know, the revisit programme yeah, or yeah, the... reviewed. Reviewed. Rise Productions have been part of. Exactly. <laughs> that was possibly what he was looking to yeah, do. sure. Okay? Um, but anyway so I decided well what I'll do I'll do what I always do which is I knew all these little venues right yeah. obviously International Bar and stuff and I'll book them for September and October I'll just put a deposit on each of them and I'll just book all these venues and the Dark Club was one that was happening yeah. as well at that time and there was brilliant people happening in Dark Club like um, Jack L and Camilo Sullivan yeah. with whatever bunch you had then you had um, the newlers. You had like a bunch of people who kind of I focused think the, he in has around a backing there.
0: Backing singer to Hazel O'Connor in the Dark Club yeah, in yeah, about yeah. 1996. Yeah, that's interesting because, <laughs> well,
1: this is about ninety. This is a, this is a spring of ninety five.
0: Right.
1: Okay. Anyway, so I start doing all this stuff and then start kind of just feeding out the word a little bit. Like I mean, we're interested in people who might be interested. Like it didn't have to be theatre companies. It could be individuals or whatever else. Because we had a base. We had the thing. And suddenly, it was like, I don't, again, the floodgates opened, hundreds of things came in, hundreds, you know, of applications came in. And, um, like I said to Fergus, like, I mean, this festival, you know, we're going to have to think of a name. And he said, well, whatever you do, don't call it Fringe. (laughs) And we got some money from Jack Hilligan, and Jack was brilliant, um, who was the arts officer in the thing, very enthusiastic and really warm. And he said, don't call a fringe. And I remember going to Declan Gorman to book the City Arts and he said, whatever you do, don't call a fringe. But I remember being in the dad club with the guy, remember the guy who was kind of nightclub-y, kind of gangster-y, he had that kind of aura <laughs> about him, the guy who ran it, you remember? He said, what are you talking about? What? what, what, what are you doing theatre festival? And I said, no, no. Um, well, it's at the theatre festival. You mean you're doing a fringe. And I went, Sigh. you know, like, look, okay, let's be blunt here. It is a fringe, yeah. okay? Yeah. This is what it's going to be, okay? And I remember going back to Jack and Fergus, who were looking forward to like seeing like eight or nine companies yeah. and having a hundred um, submissions and saying and they had a huge folder yeah. with all these submissions of people who really want to express themselves at this time in a festival of some connection and so and I remember like Annie Ryan came out of the woodwork one day she just arrived and said oh, I have this idea and I want to do this thing called cultural shrapnel which was part performance art part theatre part dancing I think and um, I'd love to do it in the Temple Bar Gallery, and I hadn't booked the Temple Bar Gallery, yeah. but I thought that'd be really funky. And that was an amazing show, actually. I mean, in terms of the diverseness that happened, it wasn't pure corn exchange in the way it became, but that was a very interesting kind of diverse thing. And other people came out of it as well. I think um, Pan Pan and Conor show, um, the Connor McPherson show, The Laundry Bar, had been rejected from the Theatre Festival. So we put it in the Fringe Festival in the crypt, you know. That worked out for you. Oh, that was phenomenal. <laughs> like I mean, we had you see for the two years that we ran it. Like I mean, obviously there was no question that there was going to be another Fringe Festival the following sure. year. And um, for the two years that we ran it, like um, we kept the creating thing because there was mad, bad, non-existent proposals. Yeah. So you had to kind of filter them a bit. Yeah. Because nothing annoys me more than somebody who can't... I don't really... I mean, I want equality, obviously, but nothing annoys me more than somebody says, I really want to do it, and they're very enthusiastic, and then they disappear, and you booked a venue for them, and a time, and a slot. I hated that, right? And that would drive me mad. And that, you know... um, It didn't really happen, because um, we did filter out who we thought was kind of not going to be able to deliver the goods, and we had a really great festival that first year. Like, 95 was... That was the year of the fringe, you know, like, I mean, it was as big as the theatre festival that year. It was just, we'd, you know, Pam Pan were doing the Bronze Twisted, so, which was a very different, very non-textual, very movement, well, not even movement, it was mad. It was like drum beats and dancing and whatever, yeah. it was a crazy show, even for them. And then on the opposite end, or not the opposite end, I mean, equally as radical, I think, and equally as brilliant, was Conor McPherson's The Laundry Bar, which obviously was the big hit of either festival in terms yeah. of an Irish context, yeah? Yeah, and was in the fringe. Now, subsequently, when it was published, it was at like part of the theatre festival. It wasn't. <laughs> it was the fringe. Um, and the following year, in '96, we had disco picks. You know, which was obviously the biggest thing in either festival as well. You know, like I mean, it was the energy, and it was the, it was just the brilliance of like Andy's writing and Eileen Walls and uh, what's his name, Killian Murphy, <laughs> <laughs> and Pat, um, who always gets forgotten, his brilliant direction. So like, um, well, Pat doesn't get write. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah, so, but I knew, like, I mean, there was no way in the world that I was going to continue my life as the fringe director. And you could have, you could see yeah. this is, this could work really well and, you know, like, it um, grow, but it needed somebody else and it got to somebody else with Ali Kern. Yes. Because Ali was able to kind of do things that I couldn't do, which is actually to bring in funders <laughs> and to bring in, <laughs> to bring in a more, slightly, I hate using the word, but a bit more, she brought a little bit more smoothness to some of the edges, okay? okay. Like, 95 and 96 were quite edgy, do you know? and not necessarily always in a good way Okay. <laughs> you know Yeah.
0: I mean that, that's part of the fringe aesthetic and whatever mm, else but mm, you know by the same token I know what you mean A bit of it's sometimes interesting to keep things sticking over but
1: also I knew as well like I mean this was the thing that was going to dominate my life if purely because it hadn't existed before yeah. right and I don't care what anyone says like the 95 was the beginning of the fringe because literally that is still the model that each of the directors have gone through since I mean they've built on it and built brilliant brilliant festivals like russia's an amazing job now and um, um, with her fri- her fringe but ali and vallejo and wolfgang all brought very different kind of personalities to it you know my thing at the time is it was at the same time as the theater festival so there was more opportunity for people from elsewhere to see shows like lime tree and disco pigs for now. example okay which if they exists in fringe now they would have to wait a year and then go into the what was it? It's a review, that yeah,
0: for things to so, yeah, which I guess is exactly the route we've taken. Well, that's weird, yeah. It's a valid point, though, if you're going to have those people around. And maybe you know, that's so better. I'm maybe, like,
1: I mean, people like that. They like that kind of structure. It just it gives it, there's less kind of, to me, you didn't know what was going to happen, right? Yeah. This was the thing. You weren't even quite sure of what you had. And the excitement of those two years, especially the first year, I have to say, was palpable it just felt kind of amazing you know and um, like I, I don't remember sleeping i don't remember you know anything <laughs> you know <laughs> you know if you were there it was yeah. like the 60s <laughs> I, the 60s in those three weeks it was a really because honestly we i remember the dad club was where we set up the box office because there was no internet as such to book the things and i remember thinking will anybody come along will anybody ring and eventually the phone was hopping off the, the hook you know
0: it's amazing yeah so then Okay, so you said, I, I don't want this to be as all-consuming as it will need to be for me to continue it on. So, then you're going, okay, let's, let's refocus on, on being the director. Can we talk a bit about a career path for a director? Because, you know, in the way that if you're a writer, you can lock yourself in your bedroom and type away and make a script. If you're an actor, to a large extent, you're sitting around waiting for the phone to ring for directors to call you in. But for a director, if that's what you want to be doing, because you need so many other elements, you need the writer to in the script, you need the cast of actors, you need the producer, whatever else... How tough is it to shape a career path as a director and how necessary is it possibly to have a company structure around you?
1: Um, I mean, there's, a, there's different types of directors. Like, I mean, there's people who approach it in different ways and sometimes all at the same time, if that makes any sense. Like, basically, you're saying you're waiting for the writers to come with, with a script. Quite often, you can generate a script yourself. Yeah. Like, um, it's only lately, it's, only, it's kind of only over the last 10 years for me that I really got involved with kind of I hate using this word, but it kind of like the play existed and then I direct it, okay? Before that, like with Alex and with plays that we picked from the shelves and stuff like that, we would build on it big okay. time, do you know? And so it was very. it's very important to me to constantly be working, do you know? For everybody to constantly be working. I hate any idea of not having a goal, okay? So, and I, do, I generate about three to four productions a year, even in this kind of climate, like, I mean, I would have done that. And... Um, so I like, like, I, I like certain, I mean, I like really um, good writing. I mean, I, I don't know how else to explain it. I love it when I read a play and it's really vibrant and the dialogue is just singing and, you know, the story is really compelling. And you find a way of, I, I don't believe I'm an interpretive artist. I don't believe directors are. I don't believe actors are. I don't think there is a such thing as interpretive artists. I think you create, okay? I think we're all creators. I think you create on the script, which is the foundations, and you build from there. And somebody else would create a different thing. It's not an interpretation. Okay. An interpretation is something totally different. It's not you build an existing and an exciting creation with the production and with the people um, you're involved with, and that you know that that that's what exists. It's not a serving of the text or whatever yeah. else. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that, you know. And um, but to generate work is like it, it like. I like like when I worked with Alex. Um, it was it was kind of interesting. We only we kind of only did maybe we did maybe eight shows together all together that he wrote mm. but like the first three are the kind of ones I remember and none of them were actually with Bedrock. The, it was Melon Farmer which I thought would be a brilliant Bedrock show but I did say to him because at that stage because of the success of the fringe Patrick would take me on as a staff director. Right. For a couple of months, not for a year, for a couple of months in the yeah, Abbey yeah. it gave me a chance to have a look at the Abbey and I kind of thought well we could pitch this if you want I could set up a reading and we could yeah. really pitch it so we had a fantastic reading with some brilliant brilliant actors we pitched it and Patrick went for it and it went on in the theatre festival and the year after we stopped doing The Fringe in 97 right. you know, and it was a huge success actually Mellon Farmer it was really good Charlie Bonner was extraordinary I mean Tony Flynn I mean, there was brilliant brilliant actors in it and um, it was a big big hit um, but I don't think it's strange. The play was so miserable in many ways because it was about a compulsive masturbator, insular, not particularly nice guy who had these friends kind of swirling around and being kind of awkward and stuff and him trying to find love. And he ends up taking the gun and shooting his toe off. Like he literally shoots himself in the foot. Yeah, yeah. It was very funny though. It was very funny. But then we did that swim to birds. And man firm was very much Alex. Then we did the swim to birds. It was very much a cooperation between the two of us. Alex got the credit for the script, but both of us had worked pretty much quite a lot on it, you know? Yeah, I mean, we had 50-50, you want to say that, and I directed it, and then I put the film that was in it and stuff like that, you know? And I really liked that, because I thought, this is how you do it. This is how you work with writers. You you take their work, and then, you know, you can edit it, or you can rearrange it, or you can add something else in and stuff like that, and he was cool with that one. Then we did Deep Space, and that was, again, we improvised an awful lot from the original script, but every single word of that was Alex, and that went to the bush and to Adelaide and to a few places. But then Alex was the writer, you know? And it wasn't, it, it, you know, it, suddenly it wasn't really good to kind of interfere with the text anymore. Okay. So I, so I, and I like doing that. that. I've set that up now a couple of times with Derek O'Connor and stuff. Like I like to, you know, co-write, you know. I'd I'd love to generate kind of plots and stuff like that and then, you know, to co-write something with somebody. I mean yeah. and we have this show that we're doing at the moment, which is based on Eric von Strohman's Greed, which I'm hoping to do next year, um, if we get the funding, um, you know, which has become a very different piece. You know, we, we've developed it quite a bit just through dialogue and through talking. and um, so, you know, I I like to be there at the beginning, you know, if possible. Now, when you work freelance and he works, say, at the Abbey or for Landmark or for a different company. Yeah. You The script, well, actually, with Landmark, with Paul Howard, I mean, we, we did quite a lot of, um, you know, that was brilliant because he's a journalist, actually. Yeah. So he wasn't precious. Right. So we were able to kind of kick that, especially the first show, around a lot, yeah. okay? And he had a brilliant Rory Nolan, Rory Cain, and um, Susan Fitzgerald, and uh, Philip O'Sullivan, and Lisa Lam. and they all had ideas about the characters, and we were able to incorporate them, and we were able to do this really madcap, yeah. maybe not particularly tight play as such but a really good show okay yeah. and paul was brilliant because he literally had written novels and yeah. he, he knew at that time very little about plays so we went where we wanted the second show we did um between fox Rock and a hard place yeah. paul had seen everything and his favorite play was um, dead of a salesman right. so okay. he was writing this Dead of a salesman <laughs> and it was like i remember because the first play was all these scenes so Really energetic Second one was a play. It was like two acts and right. three acts actually. I was going, "Oh my god, okay, that's something," you know, one and setting.
0: How different is your approach, or is there any difference in your approach to what you are doing an in inverted commas commercial play like that, or versus something like arturo in the Abbey? Is there any difference in approach, or is it still the same kind of rigor to what you're going to do?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, you have to. I mean, look, I mean, anybody who works in whatever discipline in this thing, you have to be prepared, okay? So you have to do your research. And I love the research part. And for doing something like Artur Ui, you know, I had done Ui already in, with Bedrock, yeah. which was great, you know? And I remember thinking, you know, why would I do it again? But actually, sometimes you want to revisit things, yeah. okay? And with, again, with Ui, um, Brecht is so fascinating. He's such a kind of interesting guy of, where, of what he says, because he's kind of... Um, He's on the side of, you know, the good. But yeah. he kind of, he makes evil compelling. And he's trying to examine that, you know, with, with Arthur Uy. And, I mean, it's a brilliant idea. You know, you say as a gangster, you know, as opposed to just Nazis. Obviously, you go hate the Nazis. But our whole culture seems to be based on, like, the Sopranos, the Godfather, whatever, you know. Like, yeah. we seem to like the flaws in people. And we like them if they're, they're kind of drawn big. Um, so, yeah, you do a lot of research. And, actually, the difference between, there is no difference. You prepare and prepare, and prepare, and then you go into rehearsal hoping to God you remember your name, okay? Because quite often you're kind of freaked out on the first day and you just want to be kind of, um, not so much in charge, you just want to be controlled of the environment, you know? And because the best thing a director can do is to set up an environment where everybody can feel creative and collaborative. I cannot think of, like Amanda's just worked with Robert Wilson and... um, she says it's the same thing. Like, I mean, there is a not so much a collaboration, but you can bring things there. Now, he'll stand there with a megaphone and shout at you. Okay. Okay? And I've done that sometimes as well. Like, I mean, we have to use a megaphone. Like, I used it on Uwe, actually, because right. it kind of worked during the tech. Nobody could hear me. I was <laughs> going to a meg. But it was brilliant because everybody was in the same place. People enjoyed it, right? The worst thing you can do, and it's happened, and it's been my fault sometimes, is just when the environment is not, it's just not happening, okay? And I've had a couple of, I having directed 70-something plays, there's about three times in my life when I wished to God I hadn't done that play or I hadn't, maybe my preparation wasn't good enough or just something didn't happen, yeah. you know. it just, you know, and there were three kind of big shows and it was just, oh, I just, I, I kind of regretted doing them. and um, still got through them. Yeah. Barely, in one <laughs> case, okay, um, where you question everything. And, they, I mean, you know, fundamentally, that's my fault because the director has to somehow... Be responsible is possibly the best word for it yeah. for people's well-being, which means their creative well-being as much as anything else. You know, and um, and that sometimes means not interfering. Do you know? You know, like you want to stimulate the actor as much as possible, but you know, if you keep giving notes constantly, you can actually yeah. drive that actor up the, the wall. And I've yeah. done that occasionally. So sometimes you have to just stand back and think, okay, let's see what happens, and be patient and let time kind of. You know, like, we have a certain amount of time to work in this. Let's see where it brings us, you know. Um, and, it, you know, when you have a really solid script, you know, like a really good, really examined um, script, um, things do grow out of it, you know. You are trying to kind of, like... You, you have to allow that to speak through the actors. Like I mean, actors are, you know, you sit there in rehearsal and you go, this is amazing. You know, like, I mean, this performance is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. Unfortunately, it's just me and the stage manager watching this. <laughs> so how do you kind of recreate this with the actor so that they can do this night after night after night, you know, um, and that's happening. You've just seen extraordinary things in rehearsal and you go, it's not quite happening in front of a- an audience. And that's your responsibility as well as a director. You can't walk away from your responsibilities, you know, like, uh, you know, to the actor. You know, like I mean, nobody. I, I I never really understand it. If somebody, everything is involved. Like you're all part of the same thing. You know, people have their jobs, and you have to do them well. But if you, you know, when you know reviewers review, you know, and say, well, the set was very good, and the acting was very good, and the you know, but, but, you know, it's all serving the same thing. You know, I don't. I, I think um I think you. are There's that word again, serving. Yeah. <laughs> It's like my older boy thing, you know? (laughs) I'm still serving mass. Um, No, I mean, you're all creating. That's what you're trying to do. Never stop creating.
0: Talk to me me then about upcoming plans, because there's quite a couple of exciting shows popping up. You're back in the Abbey again very soon.
1: Um, Yeah, um, with a brilliant play by Owen McCafferty called Quietly, which has... um, which examines... I mean, it's too people in the north one from a loyalist background one from a nationalist background you know the nationalists um father had been blown up in a bomb which had been thrown in by this loyalist in 1974 in a bar and um, the real bar is called the rosen crown uh, and no taking this event because it's kind of close to him he knows something about it And, I mean, he's made a fiction out of it. It's not real to life. I mean, how he depicts the characters and stuff is fiction. That's his imagination at work. But he is examining, like, the crisis of the past on the present, if you know what I mean. Like, how things don't go away. You're constantly haunted by events and by the actions that you did when you were younger. And it's a fascinating play, and it's a beautiful, really highly intense... I, I mean, I don't see much... I mean it's two guys sitting there talking you know trying to examine what's happened and what's happening between yeah. them um, observed by this Polish barman who's going through his own crisis I mean it's very very beautiful play like it, it's like great cast Paddy O'Kane and Declan Conlon Two boys at the top of the game. Dollar, to be fair. No, I mean absolutely. I mean they're they're good, and um, so I'm really looking forward to doing it. And that starts well. We start rehearsing in about a week, you know,
0: and, and then following up from that, keeping the Northern Trail going.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the, the whole next ten years, as we know, is it's not just about, but like talking about the past haunting the present. It is that extraordinary decade of like from. 1910 to 1922, when we finally got our independence and everything that we went through in this. So, I'm looking at a few shows right. at that time, you know, or stuff about them, you know, over the next few years to, to do, you know, like one you know about, um, which one. I want to examine the lockout. And um, another one, you know, I want to, lo- you know, uh, the, the idea of nationalism and, you know, like where it comes from. And also, you know, the, or, the origins of our state is kind of interesting, but there's this really fascinating play called Mixed Marriage, which is by George, I think it's Fitzsimon, and I apologise, I can't remember the right his name, who wrote it for the Abbey in 1912. Right. And it went on in 1912, and he, it's about um, a Protestant family, and the son falls in love with a Catholic girl and the tensions then it's also about the strike that Larkin actually held in 1907 where both Protestants and Catholics marched together against their employers and then were split down the middle because of this resurgence in in sectarianism on both sides um, where they couldn't actually join you know socialism was the great kind of condemnation again so anyway it's this fascinating play called Mixed Marriage which the lyric have asked me to do Great. and so I'm really looking forward to that so that'll be just after Christmas and, yeah, we'll see, you know, like, I mean, you kind of... And I'm hoping I can get Greed up as well yeah. with Derek and, and get that on either next year's Fringe or Theatre Festival or at some stage next year I'd, I'd really like to do it. And also I'd like to do another Brecht, which is called "The Good Soul of sichuan with, um, with an all-female cast, actually, because it explores the idea of gender. It's in the, At the centre of it, the, um, the character... Um, the gods come down and they meet one good person and they give her some money and then she's hit on by her neighbours and her friends and her cousins and she has to create this persona this male cousin from um, somewhere else and so she's this split personality and it's about how you deal (laughs) with your life actually you know like to an extent like I mean how you you know deal with the economic forces and how you survive in a world and try and keep kind of somehow decent in the world without kind of exploiting other people Um, so there (laughs) Um, and then
0: I mean broad, more broadly speaking into the future uh, how 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 current how compelling is the idea of directing in film or TV is that something that, that appeals to you do you think at this stage theatre is your bag and you do it well and maybe stick to it or is that something that's always there or? I know
1: I mean look I think um, look, like the biggest influences on me are film you know I, I, and I mean because I see more films than I see theatre and I love theatre and I love like you know, like in terms of my peers, like I love Jason Byrne, I love Annie Ryan, I love Gavin Quinn, I mean, there's a bunch of them, okay, people I've grown up with and I can see, you know, I will try not to miss any of their shows, even if I hate them, you know, (laughs) and I still try to see them, you know, and, you know, and, you know, there's fewer, so you're obviously influenced by who you exist with, if you bother to go see it, you know, and I do like to keep there, but like, because, you know, like we all have kids and all this kind of stuff you end up being at home a lot and you can't go out because no? you can't afford a babysitter and a, the price of a ticket as much as you go yeah, on about exactly. it i do try and think and um, so you end up watching films and like i love that you know like orson welles and billy wilder and you know people like that you know just 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 the way they're, they're able to generate things another thing like modern you know like i mean David Lynch would be a big influence. All that kind of stuff, you know. Not necessarily in the work. I don't try to aid them. Yeah. I just like, you know, you know, when you see people with very distinctive styles, it's very interesting to see how they got to those styles. Yeah. And film is a different thing. And, like, I've written half a dozen fucking screenplays, you know, um, which may or may not at some stage happen. Yeah. Um, because I do feel if you're going to film, you have to do everything, like, in terms of, like, you have to write it. I don't feel the same pressure in theatre. I used to feel it, but I do feel like you have to at least co-write or write or yeah. come up with the idea because you have to kind of own that piece right yeah. um, um, you know it's interesting actually just you reminded me of something I mean we're probably way out of time so you can edit this <laughs> but a few years ago the theatre festival got a whole lot of directors together to meet Peter Brook right and I'm not even sure if I say this anecdote but um, it was interesting there was Connell there was myself Jason Annie um. And a few others you know and we all went to the room and we sat there in the room in a circle and then peter came in with his um co-director margaret i can't remember her name um and he was 80 then or just pushing 80 you know and obviously like the empty space is the most influential book like i don't care nothing else touches it the empty space is just a constant source of kind of inspiration and just a way of thinking you know it's it, it doesn't actually give you a kind of This is how you direct. It just kind of opens things inside you, okay? Um, And, like, so I love The Empty Space, but I'd never seen any of his work, (laughs) you know? Like, I'd seen bits and bobs and videos of what's documentary. So, obviously, uh, he was a god because he hadn't been flawed by me watching anything. (laughs) So he comes in, and again, it's the guru thing, and he's kind of rebelling against it and wanting to be part of it and stuff. And he sits there, and he looks at all of us, and he says, nothing, all right? Nothing. We're very, very quiet. We're all there, very hushed. All these directors who sometimes speak to each other sometimes don't because it's very odd to get a lot of directors in a room okay because it's quite a lonely profession in that sense is that you do actors go between rehearsal rooms and see other directors at work directors very rarely do that even if they assist it's still a different thing yeah and uh, he said nothing And then eventually Colin said welcome to ireland or dublin and stuff like that and he went somebody always spoils it and i was like oh my god you know and then it was fine you know the eyes had been broken but i think he would have sat there for the next hour and not said anything and it would have been amazing i don't know anyway you know we're irish so we all had to speak and he wants to know how we all got into directing and people started talking about how they got into directing and stuff and i remember that, i can't i can't i can't i'm not going this is nonsense and uh, i was a four person or whatever and i said look you know blah. i want to know how you get on with writers okay yeah. because at that time it was the thing with me I mean if you're working with a writer and you're working with a director who actually is you know
0: who's driving the bus
1: kind of yeah you know the director is driving the production but you know it's the writer who has made the bus yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> so I want to know like I mean you know like you're an author and I mean I didn't use those words but you know like there and he smiled and said well that's why i work with dead writers and stuff like shakespeare and whatever but he had worked with carol churchill and in the 50s he had worked writers and I said but what about you know their vision and stuff and he kind of he was getting very flustered and he was getting a bit annoyed and he got a bit prickly and he said this sounds terrible Um, fuck the writer and what he meant was kind of fuck yourself like you don't you can't you can't possibly hope to get into the imagination of the writer yeah. and do what they imagine the show is going to be. You can only be in your own imagination and create the show that you create. Okay, mm-hmm. so and it was quite liberating in many ways because it wasn't. It didn't make me work any differently or anything. But I just kind of thought, okay, there's kind of you can I can't pretend to be the writer. I, you know, in the room, I can't pretend that the writer wants this yeah. all I can know all I can do is respond to a text yeah. and say it this way in terms of film though I do feel like you know I'd want to create all of that yeah. so like I mean I will like I'm making a small film next year with somebody and then um, I'd like to, yeah I, I can see it's obviously a lot harder to do yeah. films okay in terms of money and but actually it's getting very hard to do theater as well yeah. you know and you kind of think the payoffs in film is they exist in theater everything's ephemeral yeah. it vanishes you know, the production exists kind of in people's memories and it can it, it exist indelibly, in like people still talk about Don McCann and Faye Hiller, I would have done anything to see that. Yeah. I saw him in Stuart Christendom, extraordinary performance, amazing, but I would do anything to watch him. I yeah. mean, there's little video footage of him doing Fay Hiller, but I would absolutely like I'd go back in time to see that, mm-hmm. you know, which is funny because that's not even about staging you know, or direction or anything, that's just purely about watching an actor almost like a shaman that amazing dialogue, you know, and I just feel um, it exists in memory. So, theatre can do that, I suppose. But in terms of film, you can always have your DVD and say, Here, here's the <laughs> film I made. <laughs> you can't really do that with a show that you made in 1998. Oh, it was brilliant! You should have seen it. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's an amazing thing. Jimmy, thank you so much for that. That is astonishing. I'm just so delighted we got a chance to do this. That's really brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Angus. It's been a real pleasure, I hope. Anyway, thanks very much. It's great. So, there you have it, the amazing Jimmy Face. So glad I finally got him on the podcast. It's something we've been chatting about on and off over the last while because Jimmy is brilliantly uh, a big fan of the podcast. So, uh, I was absolutely delighted to finally get him on here. It's, uh, it's a kind of a special one for me. And what a great storyteller he is, man. I could listen to that dude all day long. So, look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around Dublin and around the country. Obviously, the Fringe Festival is continuing at the moment. Get yourself involved there, fringefest.com. And there's a lot of really good stuff on there at the moment um, I got a chance to get in and see like a, a double bill of Conor Madden the other night I got to go and see his You Are Hamlet uh, followed by Elevator the This Is Pop Baby show uh, which was lovely to go and catch I have to say just nice to get out and kind of finally get to see some stuff because obviously I appeared in mass for Duncan Malloy um, on Sunday but that was the first engagement I'd have at the Fringe this year because just, just things have been so manic um, so it was lovely to go and see that and there's lots of kind of really interesting stuff popping up over the next while that I'm going to do my very best to get in and try and see you know shows from people like Bush Mercosil, who's doing a show called Souvenir, which looks really interesting. Um, and also Twisted Focus are doing their show uh, Apples. know Apples in and of itself is this big award-winning play that's toured around the world and done all kinds of crazy stuff. But here's this young, new, energy-filled company coming to tackle it. And uh, I think that's going to be a really interesting one. So do get out there, see what you can see in the Fringe. There's also an awful lot of really exciting stuff going on there. Um, as we look around Dublin then, Theatre Upstairs, where we will of course be bringing Fight Night in October, um, has Unlucky for Some, which is two new shorts by the brilliant Jared Lee and that's going to be followed by a show called Dirty Money and um, the Viking Theatre where of course we'll also be bringing Fight Night in October and um has Down by the River starring Michael Bates and that will be followed by Dusty Memoirs The Gate is just finishing up with A Woman of No Importance um, do make it your business to get in try and catch that if it's not completely sold out already uh, and that'll be followed by The Last Summer which is their show for the festival this year um, The Abbey Theatre is also about to kick off with a picture of Dorian Gray starring the brilliant Mike Sheehan who uh, who took over the reins as Dan Coyle Jr. back in Glasgow earlier in this year um, that looks like an exceptional cast they put together there and, uh, and I've seen a copy of the script the script is incredible I think that's going to be a super Super, super show. Um, as we move around the country, Cork at the Everyman, uh, they have a night in November uh, and the Opera House has Steel Magnolias, which I have to say is, I, 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 it's just, I'm I, baffled by the whole thing. It looks to me like the most uh, unlikely collection of elements. It's like, you know, in a World Cup draw where there's four different pots and they draw out like one from each. It was like someone got four different pots and said, OK, we'll put um, a, d- a load of directors in one, a load of plays in another and a load of kind of performers in the other. And they managed to draw out Ben Barnes, Steel Magnolias, Misha Barton, and Madge from Neighbours. It's the most unlikely collection of elements of a show I've ever heard, but you know, who knows, it might be absolutely awesome. I hope I get a chance to catch it uh, while it's uh, travelling around the country. As we head west out to Galway, the town hall has Woman and Scarecrow from the phenomenal Marina Car. Make it your business to go and catch that, if at all possible. And heading north of the border in Belfast, of course, the Lyric has Connell Morrison's Playboy, The Western World. And really excitingly, the Mac has uh, Prime Cut's production of I Am My Own Wife, starring the brilliant John Cronin who I absolutely love to bits me and John did a, a short film together which might have been like the second or third gig I ever got when we were still only kids I was like 15 or 16 at the time um, and John's an absolute superstar look he's a great performer and uh, that's a big roast of a one man show he's doing up there and uh, and I believe it's going really really well for them so I'm, I'm delighted to see that that's all happening so look that is us that is episode 46 in the books man we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Ogue-McAnally. Yeah, I'm Angus Og We'll see you next week.